The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, not just what it means, though we do ask for that. We want to rightly interpret it. But we ask that you would even show us how it immediately applies to us. Again, Lord, we don't want to just believe right doctrine. We want to live godly lives. And we confess that we are often wise in our own eyes. We confess that it's very easy for us to ignore our own sin, even though we can be so alert to the sins in others. And so we we invite you to examine our own hearts. Help us to see how our lives need to change so that we would line up with your word and your character. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first command that Paul gives here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, is, is immediate. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put sin to death is the point. But, of course, that draws the immediate question, I think, probably all, if not most of you, are thinking. And that is, how do we do that? I mean, I know just from our conversations that, that this is one of the pressing questions you have in your life is you see sin in your life. And if you knew what you could do to get rid of it, to stop it, you would do it. If it did just simply mean chopping off a member of your body, you'd do it. But of course, we know that's not enough because sin does not just affect our flesh, but our hearts. Now, apparently, one of the allurements in the false teachings in Colossae was that they were, these teachers were suggesting that if the Colossians just follow the list of rules that they had created, then they could easily live godly lives. You might recall these false teachers suggested that following certain restrictions would eliminate or at least prevent sin. Chapter 2, verse 21, they said, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But then again, Paul says in verse 23, 
These had indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't work, in other words, because such rules don't deal with sin in the heart. And yet, at the same time, such rules are often very attractive, even for Christians, because they like the fact that they can just have rules to follow. It makes dealing with sin much simpler. And often, they're attractive because they live simply for the glory of men rather than the glory that comes from God. They're attracted because they want to have a reputation of being squeaky clean. And yet they can still harbor sin in their hearts and excuse it. Often Christians can be attracted to such rules because they can impress people while at the same time holding on to sin in their own hearts. But genuine believers don't care so much about their reputation and as ridding themselves of any offensiveness to God, whether it's what people see and what brings shame or just what only the Lord knows about. And when Paul began chapter three, he was explaining how to deal decisively with sin. And he notes first that dealing with sin begins by recognizing your real identity in Christ. And that's what we looked at last week. Verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And the point being is, we need to recognize that sinful behavior is part of our past. It shouldn't be part of our present, and certainly it is not part of our future. So he says, recognize that that's part of your old life, and your true identity is heavenly. And so he calls us to set our mind on things above. And then... Because Christians have died to sin, because they're united with Christ, and He has died and been raised, they can go forth and put every vestige of sin to death. Because we're united to Christ, we can put sin to death, as He says in verse 5. Because we've already died to it. Now you'll note in the list of sins that Paul presents in in chapter 3, verse 5, There's an inward trajectory. It's like Paul's peeling back the onion of sin in a person's heart. He's getting to the core of sin. So sexual immorality is what he lists first. That's that's a very obvious sin. It's external. Then impurity, passion. They're layers of the same sin as that sin descends deep into the heart. The core sin, though, being idolatry or self-worship. And then the list of sins in verse 7 is very similar, except that it covers sins of the tongues. And it also works in reverse order, going from inward, the anger, outward. But then the point being is what Paul is saying is that sin needs to be eliminated no matter where it exists. Whether people see it or where you alone are aware of it, any sin in the believer's life must be put to death. Not just the stuff that makes you look good, that builds up your reputation, but all of it. And so, as Jesus explained, this is because sin doesn't just 
exist on the outside, but it lurks in the heart. And it's that sin in the heart that finds expression in these outward actions. Mark seven twenty one, Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. It's that sin within that defiles the person, he says. And so in verses 5 through 11 of Colossians 3, Paul presents four reasons why Christians should put sin to death. And for the sake of time, we're only going to we're going to confine ourselves to just the first two. Put sin to death because of God's wrath and put sin to death because what was once normal as a part of your life, you are now dead to. Verse 10 speaks of gives us the reason we should put sin to death because we're now made like Christ. And then verse 11, because we find our identity in Christ. Another way to think through this more simply is we should put sin to death because of God's wrath, because of our past, because of our future, and because of our identity in Christ. You could say because of our present, because we are now identified with Christ as well. So let's look at the first one. Put sin to death because of God's wrath. That command, of course, put to death, if you're familiar with the King James Version, is mortify. In fact, John Owen once wrote a a famous book called The Mortification of Sin. And that, that book was essentially an exposition of this verse. The Monday Men's Discipleship Group just finished going through that. And in the book, Owen famously writes, The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And he asks, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, literally, verse 5 says, put to death your members that are upon the earth. Put to death your members. It sounds very similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the passage well in Matthew 5. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The heart is is where the sin is. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, clearly, in Matthew, what, what Jesus is referring to are actual body parts, eyes, Hands that should be cut off. But, but he's, not, he's not actually intending to say physically cut off your hands because he knows and the people he's talking to knew that's not where sin ultimately exists. He's, he's illustrating how sin must be dealt with, not just in its external expressions, 
but it must be cut off at its core, at its source. And here in Colossians, Paul is clarifying what the killing of sin then should look like when he says, put to death, kill those members of your body there upon the earth. The members that Paul refers to that must be cut off are not body parts, but they're the, all the various expressions of sin in a person's life, the external as well as the internal. And it begins by addressing sexual immorality. Now, this is, this is just a general word, refers to sexual, illicit sexual activity in general. And it really, to be defined, it's any sexual activity outside of the confines of of marriage. And of course, biblically, marriage can only be defined as between a man and a woman. So you don't need me to list all the possible perversions this includes. In fact, Ephesians 5 says it's, it's, it's shameful even to speak about the things people do in darkness. All you need to know is that any, any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage is wrong. It's evil. Paul includes sexual immorality in the list of sins for which those who will not inherit the kingdom of God practice. We read this in 1 Corinthians 6 when he said, Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Similarly, the Apostle John says, that the fate of the sexually immoral will be in the lake of fire. As for the cowardly, the faithful, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So even though our culture honors the sexually immoral, we tend to praise it and, and respect those people who engage in such activity. The Bible is very clear that sexual immorality will be judged severely. And Paul here in Colossians says that the wrath of God is coming upon those who engage in such sin. The next word is impurity. The word means filthy, dirty, unclean. Really, this, this includes any thought or action that you would be ashamed of if somebody heard about it. Again, when it comes to sexual activity, anything outside the marriage covenant would be considered impure. First Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this Disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Somebody says, well, I think it's okay for you to engage in sexual immorality or even just impure thoughts. They're not disregarding some man-made rule. They are disregarding the God of the universe, Paul says. This is no small thing. Passion, quite simply, refers to a strong desire. In the context, clearly it's referring to a, a sexual desire. Now, sexual desire in and of itself isn't bad. God gave men sexual and women sexual desires for the purpose of enjoying intimacy together and of putting and for uh, procreating. 
However, when a person is controlled by their passion rather than controlling their passion, they're in sin. The book of Romans actually tells us that when a person is given over to their passions, their sexual passions, that is an expression of God's judgment upon that person. Evil desire refers to the desire to commit evil. The longing to engage in behavior that is explicitly sinful. So it's not just the presence of having sexual desire in your life, but desiring to actually commit sexual sin. Is what he's referring to. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality. Not just having that passion, but having that passion directed in a, towards a sinful end. And then he says, and covetousness. Now, the final sin in this list, interestingly enough, is covetousness. A sin which many people might think of as just a, a little white sin. No big deal. Right? Something we all struggle with. But that's not the case in Paul's mind. In fact, the and here has a climactic force to it. As if to say, and especially covetousness. In fact, he classifies covetousness as an expression of idolatry. In fact, covetousness appears to be at the root of all these sins. So people might be really good about keeping away from various forms of sexual immorality because they know that might embarrass them, cause shame, cause hurt to other people, and yet just dwell in the realm of covetousness every day. Just always wanting more. Being discontent. One commentator noted that covetousness, covetousness here, quote, refers to the haughty and ruthless belief that everything, including other persons, exists for one's own personal amusement and purposes. And really, this is the essence to, to, to people's struggle with pornography. When a person sets their voyeuristic eyes on some illicit image, what they are doing is they are, in essence, declaring that that person is an object with which they can gratify their own personal pleasure. They're objectifying a soul, an eternal soul, for their own personal pleasure. The person is an object to be used. And the root of that sin is covetousness. Covetousness is just assuming you deserve more than what you already have. Yes, God's given me this, but I deserve more. And it expresses itself in setting your heart on things that don't belong to you. Or just things that you think are going to bring satisfaction. Because you're not satisfied. And so you excuse yourself by thinking, well, I, I would be satisfied if I had that. And what, what Paul is saying is that is nothing but idolatry. And that is what is leading to all these kinds of sins. So all the, the sins that you look down upon and people in the world as they engage in, at the root is covetousness, idolatry, self-worship. James chapter 4 verse 2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet. 
and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Right? Coveting its core is idolatry because it's worshiping the create the creature rather than the creator. Again, it makes things and people objects of worship rather than God. And this leads to the reason why we must be putting sin to death in verse six. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The the reason we need to put all these sins away from us is because God's wrath is coming upon these things. These are things that God hates for which God will judge the world. These sins are expressions of rebellion against God. They're actions that are aligned with Satan and every other ungodly person on the face of this earth. And so knowing that that such behavior greatly offends God should keep us from engaging in all this stuff. If Jesus is truly the treasure of your soul, why would you do something, engage in something that greatly offends him? And if you discovered that one of your friends had mocked your wife, slandered her publicly, spit on her, made fun of her, drug her name through the dirt in one way or another, would you still be comfortable going out and playing golf with that person, going fishing with that person? I mean, what would that say about your affection for your wife? If, if, such behavior dishonors your wife and you know that that she hates it what about this behavior that dishonors God what does it say about your affection for the Lord so we need to put such sins to death because they anger God secondly we need to put to death sinful behavior because what was once normal is now in our past. Paul says in verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. See, Paul understands why we struggle with sin. I mean, Paul himself admitted in Romans 7 that he struggles with sin. In fact, the Apostle John says anybody who says they they don't struggle with sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. Paul understands why we struggle with sin. Not only because he himself is a sinner, but he understands how sin works in a person's life. The behavior that used to define us is going to continue to somewhat be alluring to us, even though now we are spiritually dead to it. In fact, the key word in these verses actually isn't any of the listed sins. The key word is in verse 7, and it's the word walked. Paul's point is that such sinful behavior was just normal. It was part and parcel to the way people lived, the way you once lived. But now it's dead to you because you've been united to Christ. And that's why he says Christians must put them all away. These things no longer need to be, should be tied to you because you're dead to them. You have a new identity. I mean, just remember what the wishes and the sorcerers did when the gospel came to them 
in Ephesus. In Acts 19, 19, it says, A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it, to, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, radical repentance. They, they're saying, we're no longer identified as witches. Now we belong to Christ. In verse 8, Paul lists six kinds of sin that similarly must be put away from a Christian's life. He begins with anger. The Greek word is orge. It refers to just a, an abiding, settled anger. A slowly simmering anger in a person's life. Uh, you could translate it bitterness. And this is just one of those sins I think Christians really find it easy to justify. Especially when the reason for that anger is somebody has offended you. Somebody's hurt you. Somebody's trampled a right. Some people even revel in angry music and, and fantasize about hurting people on account of anger. Others walk around with a, a low-grade anger that's just simmering deep down in their soul. And it will only find expression when somebody offends them. And then it, it bursts out. Others seethe in bitterness, holding on to their identity as being victims. And they remind themselves again and again, this shouldn't have happened to you, shouldn't happen to you. This person needs justice. And they just their, their heart and mind is just fixed on wanting that person to be hurt on account of their hurt. They're convinced that all their problems are because of others. Right? The woman you gave me, God, she did it. She's the reason. It's the man you caused me to be married with, God. God, if you hadn't given me these children... If you had given me better children, I wouldn't lash out in anger. Right? The problem isn't in my heart. It's, it's my circumstances. And so they excuse it. They excuse the very thing that's actually causing the poison because they're unwilling to be honest and admit, no, the problem is inside. That's not to say that people aren't hurt or aren't wounded. But it is to say that that poison that maybe Satan pierced your heart with, with that wound has now leaked into your heart. And that is now the threat. And if you don't deal with that poison, you will never find peace. So you need to put off anger. Angry thoughts are just whispers of Satan who's seeking to fan the flame of bitterness and discord. The word wrath is very similar. It's the word thumos. But it speaks to actually the expressions of anger. Where that anger comes to the surface. Um, the Greeks actually had a word that, 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 they, that they pictured it. This thumos is like a, a wildfire blazing through uh, a grass field. Quickly wreaking havoc. So think of those with a short temper. Those who struggle with road rage. Right? The driver doesn't do what you expect them to do, and they immediately communicate that, whether it's to the driver or just to the people in their car. That's thumos. People who burst out in anger at family members, and they just pound the closest thing to them or, or kick what's close to them. 
And they, they let out a string of curses. Or they say, if you do that one more time, then I'm going to just fill in the blank. And after giving full vent to their anger, that they, they swagger as if all the wrongs have been made right now because they've expressed their thoughts, their feelings. When actually all that they've accomplished is they've, they've scared their kids who no longer trust them. They've alienated themselves from their spouses. And they've just proven themselves to be total buffoons. Notice what the book of Proverbs says about anger. Proverbs twelve sixteen. The anger of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. A man's man is one who is slow to anger, in other words. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Very different from the way the world responds to offenses. The world thinks you're being a coward, you're being weak if you overlook an offense. You've got to stand up to yourself. I mean, the, the, the prevalence of anger in our nation became very evident over the last few years when we had to face various restrictions. You know, and regardless of what you thought about those restrictions... Many Christians just ex- expressed anger. It's one of those sins that we, as Jerry Bridges called, just excusable or acceptable sins. And the book of Proverbs teaches that a man or woman who can't control their anger is really nothing but a fool. And this is why such behavior can't be named amongst Christians. It needs to be put to death. The next word is malice. This is a dark word. It's the word kakia in Greek. It refers to a desire to actually harm another person. And verbally or physically. It's the opposite of kindness. Malicious people imagine themselves to be social vigilantes. But they aren't serving God. They're just serving themselves in their own pride. Like they they want to they want to take people down a notch. They want to put people in their place. They want to humble others. That such malice, I think, is, is fittingly expressed by Tybalt in the opening scenes of Romeo and Juliet, when his rivals offer peace, and he responds, "Peace! I hate the word, as I hate hell." All Montagues and thee. I mean, that is a man who is consumed by malice. He has no desire for peace. He just wants to harm those he thinks have offended him. He's dominated by hate. Slander refers to any speech that seeks to hurt another's reputation. Re- uh, Revelation 13.5 says this is the kind of speech that characterizes the Antichrist. Consider another well-known example of slander from Genesis 3. When the serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan didn't outright call God a liar, but he implied it. 
And a lot of Christians try to weasel their way around slander saying, well, I didn't directly say it, but everybody knows what's being implied. Satan was slandering God, suggesting his rules didn't have their best interest in mind. Slander is the poisonous speech of Satan. It's not insightful. It's not valiant. It's corrupt. It's evil. And it needs to be put to death. Obscene talk quite simply means talking dirty. It could be sexual or scatological humor. Discussing various kinds of sexual perversion, using sexual innuendos, or just joking about such things. But it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Ephesians 5.12 I mean, Honestly, there are very few contexts where talking about sex is ever appropriate. Very few. And if it would make your mother blush... Or you wouldn't want your kids to hear it. It shouldn't be coming out of your mouth. Finally, Paul mentions lying. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. When people lie for all sorts of reasons. They lie to get away with sin. They lie to, to cover up their shame. I think in general, most people lie because... They want other people to think better of them. And so they're tempted to deceive. But often when they do that, their attempt to make themselves look better actually proves what they're really like. The act of lying shows how awful they actually are. And consider who Jesus connects this practice of lying to in John 8. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is why the Apostle John says that the fate of all liars is with Satan in the lake of fire. Lying in its nature is satanic. It is antithetical to Christ. And its behavior is completely at odds with being a Christian. And we need to recognize that because over the last few years, I heard a lot of Christians, Christian leaders, even in our own region, suggesting that you should lie if you feel like your rights are being trampled upon. Christians frequently justify lying. And yet, it is clearly at odds with Christ. Which is why Paul reiterates that such behavior has to stop. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That's not what you're like anymore. That's your old identity. You're new. You don't, you're no longer slaves of sin. You're no longer like that. You are now children of Christ, not children of Satan. The word put off was used to describe the, the removal of one's clothes. So Paul's just saying, take off the clothes of your old life. To illustrate this, I mean, imagine what it would be like if 
this Monday, Monday night football game, Russell Wilson comes out of the tunnel wearing a Seattle Seahawks jersey. Now he's playing for the Broncos. What would that communicate to his head coach? What would it communicate to all the fans? What would the coach say? He'd say, take that off. You no longer serve the Seahawks. And of course, such a situation would be ridiculous. It would never happen. But likewise, so is a believer who continues to engage in these sorts of sins. It doesn't fit. We don't serve that master any longer. We're a new creation. Imagine a man who had been enslaved by a marauding group of barbarians and he was forced to fight for them as they sought to plunder villages and wreak all sorts of havoc across the countryside. But one day that that barbarian army met the armies of the king and they were routed. And the king allowed all of those who once fought in the, the barbarian army to be released. And in fact, he offered them to be enlisted in his own army to be part of his retinue. And upon this rescue, the man who had been captured was told that he needs to take off his old blood-stained, dirty smock that he wore in all those plunderings. And instead, now he needs to put on shiny, bright armor that identifies him as one of the king's soldiers. Likewise, we need to be putting sin to death, put sin to death and put on the righteousness of Christ, which, of course, begs this question. How do we do that? How do we put such sin to death? Well, we don't put it to death by any any sort of valiant or decisive action. The world thinks killing sin just means creating rules. Doing, building up certain habits so that you just don't engage in that behavior. Now that might solve the external sins, but it won't solve sin as it lurks in the heart. The only way that anyone can still kill sin is by dying to it. And the only way you can die to sin is if you're united to Christ. That's the only way a person can stop any sort of sin, at least sin in the heart. They have to be united to Christ. But once they're united to Christ, once they put their faith in Christ, they are no longer slaves of sin. And so now all they need to do is just tell sin no, essentially. Having been united to Christ, sin's power being quenched, all we need to do then is just identify sin where it exists in our lives. In the surface sins, whether it's lying like lying and sexual immorality, or in deep sins like anger and coveting. Wherever it exists, we need to identify it. So when we see signs of sin in our lives, what we need to do is we need to be like a hunter that's stalking down some monster back to its lair. Seeking it out. Where did it come from? Where does it live? And then when we find it, we need to put it to death. How do we do that? We simply tell it, you are no longer master over me. I belong to a new master now. I will not obey you. You are powerless. And then we turn our backs on it. 
and we set our minds on things above. And every time we see the monster rearing its ugly head in our lives, we repeat that process. Where is it at? We identify it. We hunt it down to see if where it's coming from, where its roots. And then we call it out. You are no longer master of me. I do not need to obey you. And sin loses its power. So quite short, simply, we identify the sin. We ask what, what I just thought or did. That was wrong. That was not pleasing to the Lord. Or maybe you didn't see it, but somebody else pointed it out to you because they loved you enough to do so. And then we have to ask not just what did they see, but why? Is it just a surface sin or is, does that go deep down? Was that because of some deep-rooted anger and bitterness? Try to get to its root in your heart and then when you find it, recall it has no power over you. You have a new master and turn from it. Just turn from it. Tell it no. And then set your minds on things above and pursue Christ's interests. And this is going back, of course, to the previous four verses. The reason Paul says that in those first four verses is because sin lurks in the things of this world. This whole world is fast bound in sin in nature's night. Right? If you dwell, if your mind dwells in the things of this world and the things that this world loves and craves and lives for, sin is not going to be far behind. It's going to be popping up everywhere. If you're immersing yourself in worldly entertainment, you're going to be struggling with a lot of sin. And you're going to have a lot of hunting to do. But if you set your mind on things above, where Christ is, and pursue Christ-likeness and helping others pursue Christ-likeness, you're going to find that sin... Is, being, is a lot easier to deal with. You can avoid so much of sin by just simply fleeing from the city of destruction and setting your mind upon the celestial city. As Bunyan illustrated in Pilgrim's Progress. Let's pray. Father, we hate our sin. Lord, I doubt there's a, there's a single soul in here that's not pierced with shame on account of what we've done even recently and excused. Lord, we're not what we want to be, but we do want to obey this. We do want to be the kind of people you call us to be in this passage. And so help us. Don't let us be blinded by sin in our life. Open our eyes so that we might repent. And give us courage, confidence in your word. Because God, one of the struggles we have is we don't believe sin has no longer any power of us. Because we fail. And so, convince us of that truth. For we know it's true because you've declared it to be true. Help us to live according to it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.